Welcome into NBA Sound System and welcome back to my guy Scott Rafferty. Been a few weeks, but good to have you back. Gil McGregor here at an exciting time in the NBA and I'm sure it's an exciting time for you, Scott, as a Nikola Jokic enjoyer. He said it's the NBA Finals for the first time in his career. This is the uh, the best outcome possible for uh, Nikola Jokic, uh, the leader of the Nikola Jokic fan, fan club. Uh, it, it was a really fun series. I know we're going to dive into it here, but that was... As as far as sweeps can go, um, that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, there there are very few times you could say a sweep is fun. The the Nuggets eliminated the Lakers in four games, and we'll definitely talk about that. Got a lot to talk about actually because there's a lot going on in the NBA. Obviously, the conference finals, the end of an era, potential end of another era. But like I said, we should start with the conference finals and start with the series that is over. You, you said um, it, it was a fun sweep. The Lakers really did give. The Nuggets, everything that they could, uh, for the most part, D'Angelo Russell didn't have a great series, but it's not, uh, it's not the guy who really deserves the blame. I think it comes down to the fact that the Nuggets were just a better team. And each game that I watched, it felt like the Nuggets would take the Lakers best punch and then they wouldn't really be f- uh, phased by it. And they just kept going. So what did you learn about this Nuggets team or is this the Nuggets team that you kind of knew that they were all along in, in the way that they kind of, uh, withstood everything the Lakers had to give and then eliminated them in four games. It's funny because the Nuggets looked like the best team in the West for the majority of the season, right? But it almost felt, I can't remember, 15 last 20 games of the regular season, they they seemed to take their foot off the gas and that they had that losing streak and it just didn't look like going into the playoffs that this necessarily was going to be the team that would run all the way to the finals like they have. So the, the signs were definitely there, um, albeit... I don't think as clear as they should have been given how good this team has been in the playoffs. Really to me, like everything's just coming together for them, right? Jamal Murray after losing the year to an ACL injury is is as good as he's ever been. I mean, he averaged 32 points per game in this series against the Lakers. Jokic is is absolutely incredible. If anyone's been sleeping on him, I mean, this is this run should tell you everything you need to know about him. The guy's averaging a triple double. He's been unbelievable in, in every single series. Like if you look at his numbers by each series, his worst statistically was against the Timberwolves in the first round, and mm-hmm. even then he averaged like a twenty-nine point triple double almost. He, he's just been unbelievable. Teams have had no answer for him, and really they're just getting timely production from other guys, right? Like I, I thought Bruce Brown was fantastic in the conference mm-hmm. finals. Aaron Gordon had his ups and downs, but he's been solid defensively and gave him that scoring punch they needed in Game Four. Michael Porter Jr. as well has had some moments, so. They're just a team that obviously led by, you know, a guy who might be the best player in the league right now, right? Um, but also a team that just knows their identity, is really well connected. And like you said, I mean, they, they went up big in game one. The Lakers mm-hmm. came back, made it interesting down the stretch. Then games two, three, and four, the Lakers built double-digit leads in each of those games, you know? And, and it kind of just felt like the Nuggets were all right. These six minutes, like, let's buckle down. We can narrow this lead. And then they kind of took control of those games. So it, it was very impressive. This series felt more competitive to me than the series I'm going to compare it to. But it, like, almost reminded me of that Warriors-Blazers conference finals from a few years ago. Mm, you know, when the mm-hmm. Blazers took yeah, a lead yeah, every yeah. single game. And right. then the Warriors are basically like, all right, let, let's handle business now. Like, we, we can do this. That's what it kind of reminded me of. Um, but like you said, credit to the Lakers. I mean, they fought what felt like every single minute of this series. And and LeBron especially. I mean, what he did in that game four was unbelievable. 
Absolutely. I think the big difference, and I think that you would probably agree with this, with that Warriors series, it's almost like the Warriors were like, okay, let's flip the switch now. Yeah. I think the Nuggets, it was, it felt like, at least for them, it's like, you know, we're, we're kind of like waiting for that breakthrough. Like they were just kind of, they were hitting back, but it's like these hits weren't landing yet. But eventually, you know, the, the Lakers eventually showed that they didn't have enough. And you mentioned, you know, the other guys. I think that was the big thing where it was like, you know, when they're in that lull or they're, they're, they're facing a, a 10 or seven point deficit and they're trying to chip away. It was Contavious Caldwell Pope or Michael Porter Jr. or Bruce Brown that were, were knocking down open jumpers. And I think that that speaks to Nikola Jokic. And, and, you know, you talk about the measure of a great player and how much easier that they make life for those around them. And, and you know, it, it's funny because, you know, Contavious Caldwell Pope talked about the difference between playing with LeBron and playing with Jokic and saying they're pretty much the same. LeBron just jumps higher, which is a cool, cool, fun, funny way to kind of uh, differentiate the two. But I think that there's like a different level of pressure. I think there's so much pressure to perform. And you see guys, we saw D'Angelo Russell in this past series. You saw KCP deal with it when he was playing with the Lakers, Danny Green, a lot of those guys. It feels like this Nuggets team likes playing with one another and they're playing freely. And I think that that ha- has a lot to do with the way that they've been able to kind of go on this run in the postseason. They, Cause it seemed like they were a l- in a little bit of trouble when the Suns tied things up in the conference semifinals and they haven't lost since then. They've won six straight games. So uh this Nuggets team, when you look at them, it kind of feels like they check all championship boxes regardless of who comes out of the Eastern Conference, right? Yes. I mean, the the one concern with them has been the defense, right? Just knowing that you have a t- team built around Nikola Jokic, who I think he's proven to be like a, a, a solid defender at the very least, mm-hmm. right? Like he has really good hands. He positions himself well. He's huge. I mean, Anthony Davis did struggle in this series to score for him quite a lot, right? Yeah. Because he's, he's just so big. But, you know, he does have his limitations. So I think that's like the one knock against them, right? But they've also held up really well defensively. I mean, they beat a Suns team that, granted, didn't have Chris Paul for a lot, a lot of that series, but had two of the best mid-range shooters in the league and, and kind of handled their business there. And then this Lakers team were up and down offensively this year. He's still going up against LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and a bunch of guys who really stepped up for them. Austin Reeves had a big series, Rui Hachimura. So that they've been that's been the biggest surprise for me, just like how good they've been defensively. And... The reality is their offense is so good that their, their defense doesn't really need to be like absolutely elite, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you're going to get in a shootout with this team, they're going to win more times than not. But um, yeah, I mean, all, all that stuff you said, like I, I think the way that this team plays is an extension of Jokic, just how unselfish he is, how well he passes the ball. I mean, he gets everyone involved, right? Right. E- even in the big situations, like he's making that pass to Bruce Banner underneath the basket, um, kicking out to someone for an open three. And, and he just seems to pick and choose his moments so well. Um, and, and really, Jamal Murray, too. You know, he, he what he's been able to do offensively is, is just incredible. But yeah, I mean, I also think, you know, huge credit to Michael Malone, right? Um, we're seeing now an NBA where no head coaching job is really safe. And right. there's probably times that the, the Nuggets could have moved on from Michael Malone over the last few years. They decided to stick with him. Um, I, I know there's there's some things that people criticize him for, like his rotations and everything like that. But there's no denying the buy-in he's got with this team um, and how much it really does seem like everyone kind of plays for each other. And, I mean, it's got them in this position and it, it could win them the finals. Right. And I think that's the thing with him. A lot of people felt like he had lost the locker room a number of times, but it's very clear. You know, he had that message that he had uh, to Jamal Murray saying, like, you know, you're not damaged goods, you're ours, when Jamal Murray was recovering from the ACL injury that he suffered um, back in April of 2021. And now here they are. They're four wins away from the NBA title. And also – First time in franchise history since they joined the NBA in 1976 after leaving the ABA that they've made it to the NBA finals. So, um, you know, 
I guess it just kind of speaks to, you know, in an age in which we are quick to say that the coach maybe should be the one to go. Um, this speaks to the patience that a franchise can have with the coach or that management can have with the coach and, and the fact that they could eventually get over that hump like the Nuggets have. Things go your way. And there's a lot of luck involved in, in making a run to the finals. You mentioned Absolutely. their defense, and it made me think about the final play of game four. And, and Mike Breen kind of had, had the call saying, you know, you can say what you want about this Nuggets defense, but they showed up when they needed to. And it was a stop that they got on LeBron James, who absolutely did it all for the Lakers in, in game four. 31 points in the first half, highest total uh, points in the first half of his playoff career at 38 years old, year 20. Um, wasn't enough, though. Finished with 40 points, only had nine points in the second half and almost had a 40-point triple-double, and they still came up short after the game. He was very... Uh, reflective and cryptic saying that he's got a lot to think about just personally with the game of basketball. He's got a lot to think about. Now people are thinking that he's hinting at a potential retirement. What did you make of what LeBron says? Do you think this is the end of the road? Like, could you see it actually ending like this? This is one of those things where I I watched that game and then I went to bed and I turned on my phone this morning and that was the first notification I saw. It was Mm -hmm. like the Chris Haynes tweet that was a LeBron James is actually considering retirement. And my initial response was just like, absolute shock, right? And right. It, then it was one of those things where the more I thought about it, I mean, I look, on, on one hand, it wouldn't be a surprise, right? Mm. The guy is 20 years into his NBA career. He's 38 years old. Look at the list of players in his draft class, okay? He's the only player in that draft class who was selected in the draft still playing. Like, mm. by all accounts, like, it wouldn't be a surprise if he did retire just based on that, Right. At the same time, he's still incredible. I mean, right. he, he made an all-NBA team this year. He made an all-star team. He was great. I mean, he he had, by his standards, this probably was, I mean, what? what it's one of his worst postseasons ever by his standards. Right, right, I, right. I would still, you know, he still showed up so many times when the Lakers needed him. He was also, what, the best player on a team that made the Western Conference Finals. And like you right. just said, nearly had a 40-point triple-double in, in, in a game four that they needed to win to, to extend their series. Like, he's still one of the best players in the NBA. And it's just crazy to think for me that he would kind of walk away while he's still able to do this. Um, also knowing that there's a lot more that goes into that, right? Like the amount of preparation that goes into playing an entire season, all this kind of stuff. And obviously there's the brawny element. I mean, it's no mm-hmm. secret. He's talked time and time again about how much he wants to play with his oldest son, Bronny James, who is draft eligible in 2024. He he has, I feel like, softened his stance a little bit in that like, you know, he, he's made it clear he still wants to play with him, but it's kind mm-hmm. of like if it works out, that's what he would right. like to do. Whereas I feel like the first time he talked about it, it was like, I'm going to play with him no matter where he is. Like I will join that team, but it, it, it I would just, I would, given all that, I, I would be, I'd be shocked if, if he ended up retiring. This, this to me feels more like, I think, putting pressure on the Lakers to make, you know, more moves. Yeah, like, like with most things that LeBron does, ninety nine percent of what LeBron does is, is pretty calculated, and I, and I think that that's ultimately what it feels like. I think, you know. I think he's been very careful with his messaging, saying, like, you know, I might not be back in the fall. You know, we talked about the level that he played at this past season and, and what he did immediately after turning 38 at the end of December. Just went on that tear. A couple 40-point performances had one here in Charlotte that I was able to see in person. And I made the joke yesterday, but I was like, man, LeBron's turning the clock back to January because there was that injury that happened in late February. And there's been a marked difference in his performance, his aggression, that burst that he has, uh, you know, towards the rim that's impacted the way that he's played. And I think that's why this is one of his poorest postseasons by his standards and by poor postseasons. It's like, man, it took him 
12 games to score 30 points. And we're talking about a 38 year old in their 20th season yep. baffled that it took him 12 games to score 30 points, you know, in a game. And he still showed us that he could score 30 points in a half, which he did in that, in that last game. But you could hear the frustration in his voice and, and what he said, you know, like I, I evaluate my own performance in the season by how available I am for my team and he missed 27 games it was 13 games with that foot injury I think there's a timeline in which maybe he explores surgery and maybe that sets him back or maybe it holds him out for the better part of a season or the entirety of a season because you talk about so much that he does it, it puts into his body and the other thing he talked about in the other half of it is that he wants to make sure his mind is still sharp so maybe he does need a mental break you know those those deep runs that he had throughout 2010s you know going to play in the bubble which was an interesting season and the the injury woes have just kind of been rolling ever since that high ankle sprain that 2020-21 season so thinking of all those things I would also be shocked I feel like um he he would probably get a a farewell tour LeBron seems like a farewell tour guy I don't think he would just um do it like this I also kind of feel like he would want to maybe ride off in the sunset a little bit differently uh, than going out in, in a four-game sweep in the Western Conference Finals. But been wrong before. It'll certainly be something to monitor. Probably at the end of the day, it's just putting pressure on the Lakers organization. It's worth noting Kyrie Irving was courtside for that game four against the, the Nuggets. Well, speaking of Kyrie, it, the, the fascinating thing about LeBron is that I really do feel like when he returned to Cleveland, like that, that was my first thought of like, that's going to be the passing of the torch, like LeBron mm-hmm. to Kyrie, right? And I feel like that was a big reason he went back to Cleveland to to be with another young star who really could carry that torch from him after a few years. And it's just crazy to think that was what, like a decade ago, right? right. And, and yeah. here he is, you know, those crazy run, that, that crazy run he led to the Cavs, Cavs on um, after they traded Kyrie. Then he comes to the Lakers to team up with Anthony Davis. And I don't want this to turn into like an Anthony Davis bashing podcast because defensively he was spectacular in these right. playoffs, right? And offensively he still had his moments. Um, but like, I think that was the thought as well, right? Like when he first joined the lake, is probably thinking Anthony Davis is so good and he's still so young that by my age, 38 season, I won't have to go out and get a 40-point triple-double in a game four just to give us a chance of beating a team, right? So I think like on that perspective, I totally get the, the frustration because really given his mileage and, and the, the age that he is and everything, he, he really shouldn't have to be like the number one option anymore on a team. Yeah, and that's the thing you talked about. Anthony Davis is no longer as young as he once was. He's 30. Obviously, he's still very yeah. young in NBA years and very young. Just generally speaking, Anthony Davis has had a couple years ahead of them. But I felt like there would be a cleaner passing of the torch. And what we saw in the bubble three years ago, the fact that they were able to kind of be in sync and dominate at the same time. It felt like we never really saw that throughout this postseason. There were definitely moments like you mentioned, but I think back to the series and it was in the comeback effort and it wasn't enough. But AD had 40 in game one. Lakers lose. LeBron has 40 in game four. Lakers lose. So, you know, I think there are things that could be done in the margins to to help that team kind of rebuild and, and move forward. But I think LeBron's long, like you said, just tried to take a step back and it takes a different toll on your body, you know, when you're going and you've played as many games as he's played, as many minutes as he's played, and you're still uh, needing to be that guy in longer spurts than he probably should. Like I mentioned, played all but four seconds in that game for loss to the Nuggets. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see uh, what happens with LeBron and the Lakers moving forward. But also, the Nuggets are in pursuit pursuit of their first ever NBA title, and they are awaiting their opponent. And we'll talk about who it probably will be after a quick break.
As we sit here on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 23rd, we are looking at the Heat holding a 3-0 series lead over the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. Definitely to the surprise of me, probably to the surprise of most people. Um, so by the time you hear this, the Heat could have advanced to the NBA Finals to face the Nuggets. Or the Celtics are on the verge of doing something that nobody's ever done before. But I'm leaning towards history. I think teams are 150 and 0 when they take a 3-0 series lead in the best of seven. So history is not favoring the Celtics. But as, as, as we look at this series and not necessarily look back on it, but look at what we, we've seen so far. What have you made of honestly the Celtics who they've been talking unfinished business all year? They've got the t-shirts. They came two wins shy of a championship last year, which is a reminder of how hard it is to win. And there was coaching change and there's a lot going on with this team, but you would think that, you know, it's pretty much the same team from last year plus the sixth man of the year. So are you disappointed in them or let down or or what have you made of the Celtics in this series? I mean, I don't don't know how you could be anything but disappointed in them, right? Uh, This team, the goal from the start of the season has to, to, to get back to the finals and compete for a championship the the first round against the Hawks went further than, longer than it should have, if we're mm-hmm. being honest. Um, I mean, they were down three two against the Seventy Sixes, and, and really, I feel like that's a series they should have won in, a, in most six games, right? Especially right. knowing that Joel Embiid came into that series injured and everything like that, and then now they find themselves potentially being eliminated by a Heat team that's the number eight seed, um, being swept out of the playoffs, and. It, it's just it's it, they're, they're such a hard team for me to get read on, right? Because, mm-hmm. like you said, on on paper they have everything you could possibly want in a title contender. Like the, there's a reason they've been the championship favorites for a large portion of the season, <clears throat> and yet you still get games where it's like they can't seem to get a shot off down the stretch, right? Or, or Jason Tatum commits several turnovers that you just wouldn't expect from a player of his caliber. Mm-hmm. Even though he is so young, he's been at this stage so many times already in his young career. And we're talking about a guy who was, a, you know, top five in MVP voting this season. And, and it's just one of those things, like, I, I just can't get over how frustrating they are for me, who, you know, I'm, I'm not, like, a fan of this team, how frustrating it is for me to watch and how even more frustrating it must be for someone like Kyle, who actually mm-hmm. does follow this team every single right. night, Right. Because they just should be so much better than they actually are. So, in saying that, like this Heat team, it, they know their identity. They know who they are. They're so well coached, and I think that, I mean, probably like the worst possible matchup for the Celtics. Just knowing how hard they play, right. um, how in tune they are with everyone, and everything like that, and having a, a, a superstar in Jimmy Butler who you know is not afraid of the moment and is not afraid to take it to a Celtics team that seems pretty fragile right now. So. Yes, a very frustrating conference finals that's been so far for the Celtics. Yeah, I think that's the the, the way I've looked at it. And, and coming into the series, I felt like the fact that the Celtics faced this Heat team last year was going to work in their favor, right? I thought that they weren't going to take them lightly. They were going to do exactly what needed to be done because they've been in this exact same position last year. Um And this Heat team, we, we talked about it, credit goes to them. They're so mentally tough, Um, you know, there's the injury to Tyler Hero. There's the injury to Victor Oladipo, two guys who play key roles for an offense that struggles as is. But those guys leave the lineup next man up, and, and they've gotten great uh, minutes and contributions from Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, Caleb Martin. Um, you know, Duncan Robinson is back in the rotation and back, not quite living up to that contract just yet, but he's getting there. Um, you know, but 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 just talk about that um, with those guys. And I think to your point. 
this Heat team is, is so well coached. So they have the strategy and the game plan to kind of set the traps up for the Celtics to do those things that get in their own way. And then they had the mental toughness and fortitude to take advantage of what the Celtics do and where they come up short. And I think that's the biggest difference because I would, I don't even think I'm going out on a limb in saying that, well, well, yeah, the Heat are a much better team than the Hawks are, but the 76ers are a much more talented team than the Heat are, but the Heat are by far the just mentally toughest team that the Celtics have faced all postseason and probably it's either them or the Nuggets that are the two toughest mentally teams that I've seen this postseason. Just the fact that, you know, they're never really down. You know, they're coming back from double digit leads in the fourth quarter. You know, they're not really getting letting the refs dictate, you know, them. And you see the Celtics do that a lot. They don't get back on defense because they're complaining about calls, this, that, and the third. So um I, credit definitely does go uh to this Heat team. And then when you talk about credit and you talk about Eric Spolstra, you start getting into the coaching. And there's been a lot of talk about Joe Mazzula. And the Celtics, he's a rookie head coach, came from behind the bench um, in strange circumstances. So how much do you blame him or how much do you feel like he could have been better as far as the Celtics being where they are right now? And maybe some of those mistakes that they have getting in their own way. I do feel like head coaching is just really hard to evaluate in the NBA Mm -hmm. because what we see as on our TVs is such a small portion of it, right? Like there's so much that goes into coaching that we do not see. And the only people who do see it are basically in the organization every single day. Right. In saying that, like there is some stuff that you can point to. Like it it took forever. It feels like for Joe Mazzola to go back to the the big lineup with Al Holford and Rob Williams III that was so crucial to the success last season. It it just feels like it took almost too long. I mean, Mm -hmm. they they still got out of that series against the Sixers because of it, but that feels like something he could have gone to sooner. I mean, and, and there's the stuff about he's been criticized all season long for his, his timeout management, right? And then we right. saw it, I think it was in that game one when that Heat had that outrageous run in the third quarter. Third quarter. And he didn't take a single timeout. And then as soon as the Celtics made a little bit of a run at the start of that fourth quarter, Spolster takes timeout, right? And it was just one of those reminders that that's what a lot of coaches do. And, and Joe Mazzola is kind of going against the grain there. And look, that's his coaching style, right? And it's, it's, right. it's his first season. And it's so hard. To, to coach in the NBA, mind alone, be a first-time head coach on a team that does have championship expectations. If anything, it makes it even more impressive that like Nick Nurse was able to lead the, the Raptors to a championship right. in that 2019 year, especially when you consider Kawhi Leonard like it was a new addition to a team and working him in and everything like that. But you know the stuff that you read, like Brian Windhorst on ESPN wrote after that game three, that you know Brad Stevens does have a ton of faith in him. Also knows like if you hire a rookie head coach, that's going to be rookie mistakes. But right. Seeing how this series has gone, like that third quarter in that game one, and then being blown out in game three. I mean, you know, there is talk about should the Celtics fire him. Um, it it doesn't seem quite like they will, but it also at the same time doesn't seem like it would be a huge surprise anymore. Right. Um, whereas I think if, if someone said that going into the playoffs, it, it would have come as a huge shock. And that's unfortunate because, you know, as I was thinking about it and, and even thinking about it after that game three loss when they, they got blown out, they lost by 26 points. And, um, you know, talking about how the series has gone, it was two comebacks from the Heat in game one and game two. And it felt like they broke the Celtics' will and their spirit in game two because the Celtics, everybody was saying it looked like they quit in, in game three and they did really did get embarrassed 
in, in game three. And then people started questioning, you know, whether or not Joe Mazzulla's job is going to be safe, especially if they get swept, you know, as the number two seed against an eight seed in the conference finals. Um, and I understand those questions, but at the same time, you know, it's interesting because we were just talking about this, you know, in the first half of the show with Mike Malone. And granted, this isn't necessarily anything that happened with him, or at least to, to this, um, extent but we talked about just giving somebody the ability to kind of establish a culture maintain the locker room improve in the margins and eventually you get over the hump so you know with Joe Mazzulla being younger than some of the guys on his team Al Horford is younger than, than Joe Mazzulla being a rookie head coach and there's probably a little bit of stubbornness involved there and, and I think that that helps and I think that the the happy medium feels like just filling out the coaching staff and getting somebody that maybe has some head coaching experience that can get in his ear and be a voice to kind of help him learn the the ropes and kind of, you know, figure things out. Because again, like hit the ground running and that he was an assistant coach under a rookie head coach last year in, in Ime Udoka. You know, granted, Ime Udoka had years and years of coaching experience under his belt, you know, with Pop and with, you know, in, in Brooklyn and Philly as well. But still, you know, like it, it's not like he has – been around the NBA because he's, I mean, he's not old enough to have been around the NBA for that long. He's 34 yeah. years old. So, you know, thinking about that, I, I do think, you know, for a team that finished second in the Eastern Conference has two young stars, they need to maintain some type of continuity as there are a lot of questions facing the franchise moving forward. Um, but again, like that being said, credit to the Heat. I think, again, it speaks to Eric Spolster, the culture that they have, and Pat Riley having the patience with him at times because. The Absolutely. Heat have had some down years as well, and they've bounced back because that Heat culture, I think, is embedded in the continuity. I, I wrote something at the Sporting News about, you know, Stan Van Gunny's connection to the the franchise. They've had three head coaches over the past like thirty years. That's it. And Stan Van Gunny was only there for for a few years. Eric Spoelstra has been there for so long since two thousand eight. Um, so I think the continuity is a big part of that Heat culture, which I'm assuming is if if we can take anything from this playoff run, Heat culture is real. <laughs> Absolutely. It's absolutely real. Um, I, I think that's a good point of Missoula. I, there's, I think Jake Fisher of Yahoo Sports had a report today that, um, you know, they're targeting like Frank Vogel and Steven Silas as potential mm-hmm. assistants for the Celtics moving forward. That I'm assuming would mean that, you know, on the, under the thought that Missoula is back and kind of rounding out mm-hmm. his coaching staff. It's the interesting thing about this offseason, though, when it comes to coaches, is there's just so many good coaches available, right? Like right. Nick Nurse, Mike Budenholzer, Monty Williams, Doc Rivers, for all his faults, is still a very good coach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's Frank Vogel, there's more, there's more beyond that. So that's what's interesting to me that, like, you know, maybe under normal circumstances, you don't think about it and you're just like, hey, this was the first year, he's going to get better. But I wonder if that motivates a team like the Celtics, knowing that they, you know, they they probably do view this as a a title window right now, right? And they want to win now, even though they have two very young stars in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Does that motivate you more now, knowing who is available to make a change? I don't know, but um, no, I mean it's it's crazy. A month ago, Joe Mazzulla was a finalist for Coach of the Year, right? And then now we're talking about him potentially being dismissed. So it's just it's just crazy how things quickly how quickly things change in the NBA. And that's a big thing, like you mentioned, Jason Tatum, 25 years old. Jalen Brown will be 27 uh, when next season gets underway. So still very young, but there are questions uh, surrounding at least Jalen Brown's future with the franchise. I know he's now super max eligible after earning all NBA, but um, you know, they're going to questions are going to come up again on whether or not those guys can coexist. And I think that they've shown that they can, but they just like their play, they're streaky as a duo as well. And if you're trying to win a championship, you got to perfect things and maybe they don't have the right team around 
a streaky duel. So it'll be very interesting to see what the Celtics team does, whether or not they get swept, lose four, five, six, or even seven. Um, maybe if they lose in seven, things will look a little bit different. But um, if they are unable to make it to the, the NBA Finals when it felt like for them, um, the path was as clear as it ever would be. And they had the motivation of last year's disappointment. They still aren't able to get it done. I'm sure a lot of questions and a lot of looking in the mirror will happen um, in that Celtics organization. As we round out and, and finish up here, I'm going to build in the shout out because, you know, we usually just say who the shout out should be. But I think that it, it's only right. Uh, yesterday on Monday, May 22nd, Carmelo Anthony announced his retirement from the NBA, retires ninth all time on the NBA's all-time leading scoring list, did a lot over the course of his career in Denver and New York, bounced around a little bit towards the end of his career, OKC, Portland, LA. But it's interesting for me because I didn't really think about everything that Carmelo meant to the game or to me as a fan of the game growing up until he he hung him up because it kind of felt like Carmelo was going to come back and kind of play a veteran role again like he did with the Lakers last year. And he probably could have, but retiring on his own terms, being at peace with things. What were your thoughts about Carmelo Anthony and his career and what he's done for the game? I'm with you. Like he, he was, he was good. Like in his role for the Lakers last year, it did feel like he mm-hmm. could come back somewhere. Um, yeah. His, his legacy is fascinating to me because it's not just the NBA. You have the, the team USA stuff. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was crucial to building that program back up after that, that embarrassing loss. Right. And, you know, even before then the run at Syracuse that he had uh, yeah. for me, it's just like, I feel like he was just such an iconic player, like the headband, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. his style, um, the way he played, like right. I-, I couldn't be the only person who just like loved him catching the post face up, jab, step, pull up. Like he, he right. just made a-, a killing off of that one move. Right. And-, and Mello at his peak was just one of the most devastating scorers in the league. And mm-hmm. yes, you know, he-, he didn't have a ton of playoff success in the NBA, um, Mike Adams wrote actually a really good story about this, about how, you know, a, lo- a lot of years his team was actually the lowest seed and wasn't necessarily expected to win. But like, I, I think about that battle he had with Kobe in the playoffs. Um, you know, it, there's just, when you, when you do think about it, like there's just so many mellow moments and, you know, although he might not have the same like name power as a, as a Kobe or LeBron, like the amount of people who just, NBA players today growing up, you know, looked up to, to Melo, wanted to emulate him. Like Rui Hachimura, we heard that on the broadcast mm-hmm. time and time again as a guy who kind of looked up to Melo and wanted to kind of play like him. Um, I, I really do feel like he was just such a, like, an iconic player. It was, it was so hard not to like Melo. Yeah, I think that's, that's what came to my mind as well. You know, starting with that run at Syracuse, that final four was in New Orleans. And that was actually the year that me and my family had just moved to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad was really pleading for me to, and I'm, I was like eight. So I, didn't, I was, I wasn't locked into to the game like that yet, but he was really pleading for me to watch just how Carmelo Anthony played the game. You know, as a freshman, really the first successful one and done at that level. Um, you know, obviously there was like Jamal Crawford and guys, you know, before Carmelo, but for him to lead Syracuse to a national championship, as a freshman and and really be just head and shoulders above the competition and just that setting the tone, being on the cover of, you know, NCAA March Madness and the cover of NBA Live. I wore a Carmelo Anthony jersey to the first day of, of sixth grade and had a couple of Carmelo Anthony jerseys, you know, throughout my middle school years and, and growing up. And then, you know, even the next years, you know, I think back to that performance that he had against the Bulls. I think it was on ABC on a Sunday afternoon. He hit like a big shot to force overtime. They hit the game winner. Um, you know, Carmelo was a guy and you mentioned, you know, the, the big names like Kobe and LeBron and D Wade, all those guys have always revered 
Melo as what he was able to do as a pure scorer, as a pure player. Um, I think one thing that we kind of don't think about when we think about him just because of the way he was able to score from all levels, just how strong he was and what yeah. he's able to do, you know, on the block. I think back to seeing him play in the playoffs when, you know, they made light work of the Hornets, uh, back in 2009 and had the, the biggest, uh, Playoff victory in NBA history, 58 points. That was Carmelo Anthony. So if he has anything, you know, he might not have won the, the NBA championship or won big, but he definitely won big, um, in, in that game. So, um, now it's interesting, you know, in, in his, in his, um, retirement announcement, he's, he's passing the torch to his son. Um, so that would be interesting to see. You know, we talked to Bronny earlier. Uh, Carmelo's son is a little bit younger, but, uh, he's beginning his journey and it's kind of cool and, and also can make you feel old. Uh, now you see these guys that we <laughs> felt like we grew up watching as our idols. Now we see their second generations, uh, make it and, and try to carve their own paths. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just, you know, the whole, I mean, he's going to be in the whole fame, right? He was NBA absolutely. 75. He was one of only, yep. I think, 11 active players to make that 75th anniversary team last year. He's an absolute lock, first ballot. Um, and yeah, again, you, you just hear from everyone just how, how great of a player he was. And uh, it's it's a shame that we didn't get kind of that farewell tour, but you know, right. still one hell of a career. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the, the redemption, and I, I don't want to call it redemption because it wasn't like he had done anything that needed to be redeemed for, but he just got written off for a little while for him to kind of really take a look in the mirror and, and redefine himself in those veteran years that he had with Portland and, and and then finishing up with LA. I think that speaks a lot to just Carmelo Anthony, just being a pure basketball player and who he is. So we always end with a shout out, shout out to Carmelo Anthony on a very, very, very decorated 19 year career. Also three time gold medalist for team USA and probably um, one of the greatest Olympic basketball performers the United States has ever had. That's it for this edition of NBA Sound System. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast because we got more coming for you. The NBA Finals get underway on Thursday, June 1st. So we'll be back here next week to talk about the matchup once it's officially finalized. You see what I did there? Finalized. Um, nice. Sorry, I had to do it. Nice. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I was overdue for a pun. Um, <laughs> but we'll have more on that because it's going to be interesting. I, I don't want to get into the legacy talk, but it's going to impact somebody's legacy, whether or not we see the first eight seed to ever win a championship or we see Jokic put a cherry on top of a perfect season for him uh, by winning finals MVP uh, as well so does Jokic crack the top 10 if he if he wins the championship are we that's high that's <laughs> high but I it's a discussion it's, that needs to be look, had it's look, a discussion that needs we'll, to be we'll, had. we'll discuss a, it I think top 20 is definitely in range top 20 um, uh, yeah top top 20 is top 10 good. top 10 is really tough to crack we went through this with Steph Curry last year it is very yeah. difficult to crack that top 10 but uh yeah top 20 top, when you have a Two MVP awards, potentially a championship, potentially a finals MVP. It's a verified company. He's 28 years old also. So that's the <laughs> other thing. He's 28 years old. We talk, talk about feeling old. He's got a lot ahead of him as well. So we'll have more about that. We'll talk We'll talk legacy. We'll talk NBA finals next week on NBA Sound System. Thanks again for tuning in. For Scott Rafferty, my name is Gil McGregor. We will catch you here to talk NBA finals next week.